PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. And Eclipse interfaces with programs like Redoc to create a true paperless office. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. They begin working on higher level functioning activities, you know, including doing skydiving, rock climbing, whitewater rafting. We want them to get the highest level that they can achieve. We've got guys who come here and do more than they did before they got hurt. Some of what we saw as pretty intimidating injuries four years ago or five years ago really aren't so intimidating anymore. This speaks greatly to the APTA's vision of 2020 and how military PTs, especially deployed, are fulfilling this now, 10 years ahead of schedule. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast, focusing on physical therapy and rehabilitation in the United States military. U.S. Air Force Officer Major Nicole Rainey moderates today's discussion on clinical care from the battlefield to outpatient care stateside. This is part two of a two-part series. Part one focused on rehabilitation research and infrastructure in the U.S. military. These podcast discussions were inspired by the perspective article Traumatic Brain Injury and Vestibular Pathology as a Comorbidity After Blast Exposure by Captain Matthew Scherer and Dr. Michael Schubert, published in PTJ's September 2009 issue. And now, our moderator for today's discussion, Major Nicole Rainey. Good afternoon. My name is Major Nicole Rainey, and I'm a physical therapist in the United States Air Force, currently stationed in San Antonio, Texas. I recently returned from a deployment in Iraq, where I served as the chief of the outpatient physical therapy service at the busiest trauma center in the country. So that's part of why I'm very excited today to moderate our podcast. I'd like to welcome everyone to what I anticipate will be a very insightful discussion centered on the clinician's perspective regarding how the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have affected physical therapy and rehabilitation in the Department of Defense. We'll also spend some time discussing the role of the physical therapist while deployed. A large number of military physical therapists are deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan to provide musculoskeletal care. They are often the first-line orthopedic providers, allowing surgeons to stay in the OR. I'm really anxious for our physical therapists to discuss their role and experience while deployed in the environments of Iraq and Afghanistan. To help us in this afternoon's call, it's my privilege to have with us three military physical therapists as well as a nationally recognized expert in prosthetics and orthotics. They'll be able to give us some terrific insight on our topic for this afternoon. First, I'd like to introduce Captain Dan Watson. Dan, it's good to have you with us. Thank you, Nicole. It's great to be participating in this podcast, and I'm looking forward to a great conversation. Great. Well, glad to have you. Captain Watson is a physical therapist at Lackland Air Force Base, Texas, and a clinical instructor in the U.S. Army Baylor University Doctorate of Physical Therapy Program. Dan was deployed to Joint Base Balad as officer in charge of the outpatient physical therapy clinic. Dan just returned to us from Iraq in July of this year. Next, I'd like to introduce Captain Mark Lester. Thanks, Mark, for being here. Thanks, Nicole. I'm happy to be here, and I look forward to having a great discussion with you today. Me too. Mark and I are old classmates. Captain Mark Lester is a physical therapist working as the Chief of Burn Rehabilitation at the U.S. Army Institute of Surgical Research Burn Center at Fort Sam Houston, Texas. Mark was the Chief of Physical Therapy for the 28th Combat Support Hospital in Baghdad and a research physical therapist at the U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine. 
Lastly, I'd like to introduce our experts from the Center for the Intrepid at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. First, Major Stuart Campbell. He is the senior Army physical therapist serving at the National Armed Forces Rehabilitation Center at the Center for the Intrepid. Major Campbell has deployed twice to Iraq with the 10th Special Forces Group. Stuart, glad you could be here with us today. Nicole, it's good to hear from you and uh, looking forward to a good discussion. Thanks, Stuart. Next is the other member that we have from the Center for the Intrepid, Mr. John Ferguson. Welcome, John. Thank you, Nicole. I look forward to a lively discussion and sharing some of what we've learned over the past several years. Great. Glad to have you. John is the chief prosthetist at the Center for the Intrepid and also serves as adjunct faculty at the Army Baylor Doctor of Physical Therapy Program and the University of Texas Southwestern Prosthetics Orthotics Division. As you can see, we have assembled a very experienced group of experts in the area of rehabilitation for battlefield-related injuries. I'd like to open our discussion today by talking about the initial injuries sustained in the battlefield. I'd like to pose the first question to Captain Watson. Dan, how long does it take for a soldier to get back from the theater after they're injured in the battlefield? Great question, Nicole. It can take anywhere from um, 48 to 96 hours to get from the battlefield back to definitive care in Washington, D.C. or San Antonio. They're averaging about 72 hours right now. The uh, service member is initially stabilized in the field by usually a combat medic who then initiates the evacuation process usually to a larger medical facility within the local theater. From that larger medical facility, they are then transported via AeroVac to Europe, and then they go from Europe back to the States. There have been several instances, though, where the injuries have been so severe that they have flown service members directly from the theater of operations directly back to the States, which involve multiple refuelings across Africa and across the Atlantic Ocean to try and get these folks back to definitive care, though. Great. Thank you, Dan, for that perspective. Is there anybody else that would like to talk about the transport of these patients back to the medical centers in the U.S.? Nicole, this is Stuart. Um, the ISR and the Burn Center have their own flight team, and if Mark could talk about that a little bit, they've been very, very successful getting guys back here very early on. Thanks, Stuart. Our model reflects very closely what Dan described, but it becomes somewhat unique within burn care. Historically, a burn patient was not evacuated anywhere until they were medically stable. We have advanced past that point now and actually have a unique aeromedical staging platform that allows us the ability to be on the ground anywhere in the world within 24 hours to actually receive a severely burned individual and stage them directly back to the United States and our burn center here in San Antonio. It's the only aeromedical staging platform like this in the world, and it's greatly enhanced our ability to provide definitive care to these individuals. Essentially, what we have is a flying ICU. That's very impressive, Mark. Can you share more about what the function of the ISR is in the military rehabilitation process? Sure, Nicole. I'd be happy to. The ISR stands for the Institute of Surgical Research. Our mission is twofold. First and foremost, it's the clinical care of all Department of Defense beneficiaries who have suffered burn injuries. Our secondary mission is to advance pre-hospital combat life support to our wounded warriors. The ISR is responsible for some of the innovations that have come out in the current wars, such as the quick clot product, which speeds clotting following traumatic hemorrhage, the new tourniquets that are widely distributed throughout the Army and Marine Corps, 
these things are all innovations that have come about because of research that has been done through the Institute of Surgical Research. Uh, the current wars have grossly changed our rehabilitation model in burn care in that prior to the current wars, we provided an exclusively inpatient mission at the ISR. We were an acute care facility. Burn patients were admitted into the hospital. Once they had gotten to the point that they were definitively closed for their burn wounds, they were released from the hospital and sent back to their respective units for further rehabilitative care. Over the last six years, our mission has changed so that we have now advanced into holding on to our burn survivors for a longer period of time, and we provide all stages of rehabilitative care right here in San Antonio. Mark, let me ask you a little bit more about that. What are the main challenges that your team faces as you're holding on to these patients longer? There are a number of challenges that we face. Initially, when we see a patient acutely, rehabilitation starts within 24 hours of admission to the hospital. This means that we're seeing a large number of individuals who are in a critical state of medical care. So there's huge amounts of comorbid trauma that are associated from organ injuries to orthopedic injuries, amputations, multiple compound fractures, things of this nature, as well as we are also the regional burn center for all of Southwest Texas for the adult population. With our combat casualties specifically though, many of our patients come back and have inhalation burn injuries as well, so they're placed on a ventilator status. Many of them require extensive renal replacement therapy and things of this nature. We will actually coordinate care with our respiratory therapy team so that we can modify their ventilator so that we can get these individuals up and into a weight-bearing status as early as possible and try to diminish their ICU stay through our own physical therapy means. And that has been a very successful model. Well, Mark, how long do you typically keep a patient in the ISR before they are transferred? We have a staged program, and part of how long they stay within the ISR is dependent greatly upon how severe their burn injury is. Smaller burn injuries are actually staged out of the ISR once they've completed their acute rehabilitation process, and many of those individuals are sent directly back to their units. For our larger burns, they will stay within the hospital until we have definitive closure on them. And that can range anywhere from a few weeks to well over a year. But we have basically a four-tiered staging program for our burn patients. The acute phase of their care that's done on an inpatient basis, a subacute phase where they're moved into an outpatient basis but still managed at the ISR directly, a longer-term rehabilitative phase where we actually transfer them over to the Center for the Intrepid and they begin working on higher-level functioning activities, you know, including doing skydiving, rock climbing, whitewater rafting and things of that nature. And then our final stage is a long-term follow-up where they no longer need direct rehabilitative care, but we want to be able to continue to monitor them to make sure that they don't have any physical or functional setbacks. Thank you, Mark. Major Campbell, I just had a question for you. It would seem logical that some of the patients that are treated at Brook Army Medical Center would be transferred to the Intrepid Center for continued care in the stage three phase that Mark had described. Can you tell us what level of function should be expected for these wounded warriors? It's a very uh, individualized program. The functional outcomes, uh, we expect them to get the highest level. I mean, it's a, it's a rough answer, but we want them to get the highest level that they can achieve. We've got guys that come here and 
do more than they did before they got hurt. And then with our prosthetic department, uh, John can speak to it a little bit better than I can as far as some of the things that they've come up with prosthetically to help some of our amputees do some pretty amazing things. Well, that'd be great. I would love to hear from John. One thing that I'm really interested in is to know what kinds of new technologies have emerged as a result of the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Hey, Nicole, this is John. Well, I think what you see happening in technology, a lot of it is really due to the military research program, which probably recognized that a lot of the current technology had pretty significant limitations for a younger trauma group, a highly motivated younger trauma group like these individuals. Some of what you're starting to see emerge now that are mostly military-funded projects, many being researched and tested right here through the Center for the Intrepid. But you are seeing the emergence of powered joints where you have powered ankles that will allow someone with a blow-the-knee amputation, for example, to actually finally have push-off, which has really kind of been the missing link in the gait cycle with prosthetics. Although current prosthetic foot technology is good, it still only stores the energy that you put into it and releases a percentage of it back. So that's just one particular example. And some of the next ones that you've seen that have emerged and developed quite significantly over the last five years are some of the powered knee systems. There's one or two that are really the primary players, but to have powered knee extension for a stair ascent that potentially will allow people to get back to even a higher level of activity. And so when you're seeing some of the guys come back and they say, well, I'm not going to be happy until I get back on the track. And initially you might think, boy, that's really a high charge. But I think Major Campbell would agree that some of what we saw as pretty intimidating injuries four years ago or five years ago really aren't so intimidating anymore. And some of that is because we've gained a wealth experience in how we're fitting them. Uh, The technology has gotten significantly better. And really what's on the horizon next few years is better yet. So on the upper extremity, powered arms, powered elbows with multiple degrees of freedom so you can operate the elbow at the same time you're operating the hand. So moving more toward a much more fluid kind of a movement on an upper extremity. Well, these new technologies really sound like they're a big factor in getting these wounded warriors back to such a high level of function. But even with these technology advances, I'm sure that you have specific types of challenges with these wounded warriors because of multiple limb loss and polytrauma. Can you tell us about some specific challenges that you and Stuart face together in rehabilitating these wounded warriors? Let me hit this one real quick. This is Stuart. One of the things that, as far as this discussion goes, is, yeah, there's a lot of technology out there. And one of the things in specifically amputee care When we're not in a wartime footing or in a conflict like this, amputee care is really driven on the civilian side of the house by the prosthetic industry. And one of the first things that we had to come up with as a rehab staff is getting these young guys into this technology was great, but we had to also change some of the ways that we trained them, the way we taught them to walk against, the way we taught them to ascend and descend stairs and ramps had to change because the rehab side of the house hadn't kept up with the technology side of the house. And that's going to continue to be a challenge as the prosthetists and the researchers do their job and come up with better technology, things that are more natural, more lifelike. As a rehab professional, we have to make sure that we keep up and that we're training them to maximize the use of that technology. I was wondering, Stuart or John, if you could just maybe summarize the top couple of lessons learned by treating this population that you think could be best used by civilian physical therapists or civilian prosthetists in their practice. This is John. I think, Nicole, probably one of the biggest lessons that I've been taught, and unfortunately I have to be retaught it every now and again, 
is to not limit someone's potential just because at the outset they may not appear to be a candidate to go to a certain level or to participate in certain activities. I've been proven wrong multiple times. So probably my biggest lesson is don't, even the most difficult cases, don't prejudge, don't assume that they're only going to get to a certain activity level, but really listen to them, then find ways to help them move toward that. They may not reach it ultimately, who knows, but at least providing them all the tools they would need to begin moving toward what they see as their ultimate goal. I could probably tag on that same thing. Probably the biggest lesson learned here is that as a physical therapist, you get caught up in your clinic and you end up doing rehab in a vacuum. You know, you have your piece, the OT's got their piece, the recreational therapist has got their piece, the docs have their piece. The thing that has made us the most successful here is the fact that we have the relationships with the other providers that has really helped us more than anything else. Um, I'd like to hear from Dan and his clinic and then Mark as far as one of the big challenges is the fact that we do keep these guys so long and trying to keep things interesting and keeping things motivated so that they do reach that potential that they have. I'd just like to see what they have to say about that. This is Daniel. Just to, just to weigh in on that and from firsthand experience, the rehab care that they are getting over at Bamsine over at the CFI with all of the prosthetic care, the amputee care, I saw that firsthand. I had a young Army soldier who was rehabbed there, had an above-elbow amputation from an IED blast, and then he redeployed two years later with the prosthetic arm, and he was serving as a gunner on top of one of the armored vehicles for convoys, and he was happened to pass through the area and had two of these prosthetic arms, and on one of them, a screw had come loose and come unattached, and so he came by just hoping that we might have a screw that would fit, and we ended up doing it, and I think that that speaks to a great point of keeping things interesting and getting them back functional, because many of these young soldiers, airmen, marines, and sailors want to get back doing their jobs and get them back doing those functional activities, and that's what we as the therapists the skilled providers have to maintain that drive to get them back to what they want to do. There were a handful of amputees that I saw over in Iraq, so it speaks a great deal to the things that these guys are doing over at the CFI and over at BMC. Dan, that's very impressive to me. I was really unaware that we had amputees serving back in combat zones and that we were giving continued care in a forward deployed location. That's very, very impressive and really a testament to the work that Mark and John and Stuart are doing with these patients. They're rehabbing them to such a level that they can return to deploy with their units. That's very impressive. One area I would like to explore here before we go is Captain Watson, you were deployed as a physical therapist at a base in Iraq, and as I see it, we're functioning in a direct access role and almost mirroring the APTA Vision 2020 that physical therapists would be the musculoskeletal experts of choice. Can you talk to us a little bit about your role in the direct access setting at a deployed location? Yes, Nicole. When I was deployed, uh, I, I was responsible for all of the outpatient physical therapy care for the majority of northern Iraq, and many primary care providers would contact me either via email, via telephone, and run cases by me. They'd shoot me radiographs and say, what do we do? How do we get them going? The majority of the patients that I saw, more than 80% were direct access role, where I was acting as their primary care manager, managing their medications to control any pain issues, 
where I was controlling any job restrictions. I was just doing everything in my power to get them back out doing their job as quickly as possible and supporting the orthopedic team at the hospital by keeping them available for those emergent polytraumas to go into the operating rooms at all hours of the day. And I think that this speaks greatly to the APTA's vision of 2020 and how military PTs, especially deployed, are fulfilling this now 10 years ahead of schedule. I agree with you, Dan, and I just want to thank you for sharing your experience in Iraq and your experience as a deployed physical therapist. I really appreciate that. Nicole, this is Stuart. Can I touch on that just a little bit? Sure, Stuart. Go ahead. As Dan said, in a deployed environment, he's relying a lot of time on primary care people that don't have real big backgrounds in musculoskeletal exam or treatment. In Vietnam, we were in the military, we were acknowledged as physician extenders. And there's some great articles out there about our role as physician extenders. Since then, the profession has grown and changed quite a bit, as you guys all know, through your residencies and the skill set that we have developed, that we're not really as much physician extenders now as we are a very distinct practice, have distinct skill sets, and have something to offer that a lot of primary care folks don't know about. One of the things that I did a lot of when I was deployed is I was able to travel around a lot in Iraq, all over the country, and got to go in and educate. And this is something for the civilian practices. A lot of people don't know what physical therapists can do. So being able to go out and educate and teach people and becoming your own best marketer as far as referral sources and then letting the local community know, why would I go see a physical therapist versus seeing a chiropractor, seeing my family practice for an ankle sprain or my solar shoulder or whatever. I think it's real important that people learn to market themselves to really get into that direct access role and show that they are the musculoskeletal experts and it is the quickest way back to renewed function. Thank you, Stuart. I think now we all have our charge that we need to go out and educate and that we have plenty of lessons to be learned from the military experience in caring for our wounded warriors. So I hope you've enjoyed our podcast today on the implications of the war on rehabilitation. Thank you to everyone who participated on our panel today, Major Stuart Campbell, Captain Mark Lester, Captain Dan Watson, and Mr. John Ferguson. Thank you very much. Part one of this series is available at www.ptjournal.org and on iTunes. Send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening.